to, uh, I thought for a moment about putting this morning's sermon title on the bulletin cover. And I thought, you know, somebody who comes to TCF and sees that title think, I don't know about this church. And then I began to think about what it would look like on a church sign. <laughs> I thought, nah, I better not, better not ask Debbie to put that on the church cover, the bulletin cover, huh? But believe it or not, that's a quote from Scripture, and we're going to see that here this morning. We have many ways of saying goodbye to one another. There's this, for example. <laughs> Hopefully we don't say goodbye to people that way very often ourselves. And then, of course, there's this other way that many of us are familiar with. Don't you love the wave, huh? The wave there on their horse, huh? And you just maybe fall off. Anyway. So there you got you got those two ways, right? There's hasta la vista, baby, with followed by gunfire, and you got happy trails to you. Now Shakespeare actually wrote a very familiar farewell in his play Romeo and Juliet, where the line says, Parting is such sweet sorrow. You remember that? Juliet, of course, is saying goodbye to Romeo, but just for a while. Their parting is sorrowful because they hate to leave each other's presence, but it's sweet because it makes them think about the next time that they're going to be together. Now, there's often something else that's part of our goodbyes in some circumstances. Think of this, parents in particular. When we leave our adolescent children at home, we don't just say goodbye, but we'll often leave instructions for them, won't we? Clean your room. Do your homework. Clean your dinner dishes. Don't forget to turn off the oven. Be sure to get to bed by such and such a time. Now, these instructions are designed to help them remember important things and to deal with the reality of the fact that you're going to be gone for a little while. They need to do certain things while you're gone, and they need to feel safe. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. If you don't have your Bibles, you can read along on the screen with me where Jesus is speaking here. And he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There it is, this morning's sermon title, right out of scripture. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. What does this have to do with goodbyes? Well, this passage is right in the midst of what many have called Jesus' farewell discourse. It begins near the end of chapter 13 of the Gospel of John, and it continues through chapter 16. In some sense, it actually continues even further into chapter 17 when Jesus prays what has been called his high priestly prayer, praying for his disciples and praying for all 
believers in him. But right in the midst of this discourse, this talk with his disciple, we see these verses about the world hating us, about persecution, including the words that make this morning's sermon title, The World Hates You, we see in verse 19. Now, if this was just an isolated passage, it would be even more disturbing than it really is. We often talk about the promises of God, and they're absolutely a wonderful thing to consider, to ponder. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We've pondered these things from the pulpit before many times. But when we see things like this, these are sermons that we don't hear very often. These are verses that we don't pay attention to very often. The world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Or when we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 12 through verse 13, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We don't like to think of these kinds of verses in the same sense as the promises of God. And even if we don't classify them as quote-unquote promises of God, we still have to deal with what they're saying about our lives as followers of Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. Is anyone here seeing on the horizon the days that we here in America will see the fulfillment of Jesus' words, that the world will hate you. It's happening, folks. It's happening. Dr. Robert George, a professor at Princeton, said at a prayer breakfast just recently, my message for you today is a somber one. The days of acceptable Christianity are over. The days of comfortable Christianity are past. It's no longer easy to be a faithful Christian or a faithful witness to the truths of the gospel. Of course, there are many parts of the world where this has been happening for centuries, where this has been daily life, and it's all they've ever really known. So let's not confuse what we're facing, at least what we're facing right now, with what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in hundreds of nations around the world have really faced their whole lives. Nevertheless, in the West at least, there are some Christians including here in America, that are being marginalized, they're being labeled bigots, they're being labeled haters, because Christians take a stand on biblical issues, certain issues which have become cultural flashpoints. And people hate bigots. It's almost about the worst thing you can be labeled, to be labeled a, a bigot or intolerant. So because Christians are apparently bigots, here's the irony, now we're hated. One group, for example, the Southern Poverty Law Center, has classified the Family Research Council, which is a Christian group, as a hate group, right along with the Ku Klux Klan. So now, for believing what Christians still believe is sinful behavior, we're hated, we're marginalized, we're considered bigots. CNN asked this question. Wouldn't be the kind of question you'd think you'd hear from CNN, but they asked this question in a recent story. Are people of faith no longer welcome, I think we skipped past here, let me see, there we go. Are people of faith no longer welcome as they continue to hold the beliefs they have held since their foundation? Must they jettison their sacred texts and adopt new views to be accepted as part of society? If they do not, 
Will they be marginalized and demonized even as they serve the poor, care for the orphan, or speak against injustice? Well, Jesus said in this passage of scripture that we just read that his followers would be hated by the world. Now, we have to be careful that we're hated, if we're hated, that we have to be careful to be hated for the gospel and not for being obnoxious or not for being just simply sinful, not for our sinful behavior. Yes, it's true. Christians have stood against sin in ways that were hateful and ways that were foolish and have had high-profile sinners revealed, making us look like hypocrites. And I believe, as a result, the cause of Christ has actually been hurt because they've in some way become the face of Christianity to a watching world. I certainly regret that. I'm not excusing that. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But clearly, it's also true that when Christians call sin, sin, even in the most loving and merciful and gospel-filled way that they can, even recognizing that we, I, am a sinner too, and I am in need of God's grace every bit as much as any other kind of sinner, whatever the sin, even doing that, Doing it all right, some people are still not satisfied. That's because, apart from the Holy Spirit's conviction, no one likes being labeled a sinner. I don't like it. I admit it, but I don't particularly like it. No one likes having a lifestyle that they've fully identified with called sinful. So ironically, because Christians are labeled as haters for identifying certain things as sinful, we are in fact hated by the world. Haters but hated, just as Jesus predicted. And so Jesus said this, the world hates you. And he said this right in the midst of saying goodbye to his disciples. As I pondered this word today and made in my mind what to me are very clear parallels to our culture today, I realized it would be kind of easy to read this one section of scripture and despair and become depressed. We're being demonized, we're being marginalized, we're being hated by the world. More and more, it's happening quickly, folks, and it's happening right before our eyes in ways that we honestly couldn't have even imagined a couple of years ago. And there seems to be no stopping it. It seems bad to us now. Now, I think the whole cultural drift that we're experiencing now is so jarring to our sensibilities as believers in Christ mostly because Christian morality, at least if not the true gospel, has been the majority view in this nation for most of our lives for anybody who's over 30. But even though it feels like our culture is sliding into the sewer, you know what? It really was worse for the disciples when Jesus spoke this word to them. That's hard for us to imagine because, again, we've come from a culture where Christianity and Christian values were at least respected, if not totally honored. But it was worse. So it would have been easy for the disciples to despair. It would be easy for us to despair. It would be easy for us to lose hope, to say, woe is me. To say, if we were the disciples, to say or think something like, Jesus, don't leave us. You can't possibly go now. How can you do this? And of course, Jesus knew this. He knew that his disciples and that we would need some perspective here. He knew that we would need some idea 
of the big picture. We would need some idea of how to respond as believers in Christ to a world that hates us. So he spent some time with these men he loved, and he equipped them for what was sure to come in their lives. He informed them. He comforted them. He encouraged them. And we, fortunately, have this wonderful record of this in his word so that we, too, can be equipped, that we can be informed, we can be comforted and encouraged as we face the world's hate in whatever form that comes. The things Jesus said in this extended passage of Scripture are way too numerous to mention. I'd encourage you, if you, if you have a mind to, perhaps read from John 13 through John 17 on your own. There's a lot more than we're going to cover this morning. But let me highlight and expand on just some of them. Remember the context here again. Jesus is saying farewell to his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. Judas has just left to betray him. He's sharing a last meal with them before his crucifixion. And I think this is interesting and important to consider, that Jesus' farewell talk with his disciples was given at this point before his death and his resurrection, and not later after he spent those 40 days with them following his resurrection and before his ascension into heaven. I can only speculate about the reason for that, why now and not then, But can you imagine how much more in despair the disciples might have been if Jesus hadn't said these things to them before he was crucified? Though it's clear they didn't fully understand all the things that Jesus said to them in this conversation, I think it had to have penetrated their minds and spirits to some degree to help them cope with the reality of their master's horrible death in those hours before his resurrection and how this would impact their lives. How much we have to wonder, did they call to mind these words in the midst of their grief over his death in in that time between when Jesus was put in the tomb and when they were able to proclaim, he is risen. So let's take a look at a selection of key verses in this discourse of Jesus, and let's remember as we look at these verses that all of these verses are in the context of Jesus' statement that says, the world hates you. First, Let's look at John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It was a new commandment, Jesus said. Now, didn't the Old Testament say anything about love for one another? Yes, it did. But Jesus said a couple of things here and reinforced and strengthened it and clarified it with a similar statement in John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, where he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. So it was new, it was a new commandment because Jesus himself was now the model of love, what love looked like. And it was a sacrificial love. As I have loved you, Jesus said. And how did he love them? He loved them by laying down his life for them and for us. What's more, Jesus said, our love for one another will be part of what he uses to adorn the gospel message. By this, he said, by this, all men will know you are my disciples. So love is to be the hallmark of believers in Christ. 
And I think this is perhaps the biggest part of the answer to our question. The world hates us. How are we to respond? Love one another. Love one another. Lay down our lives. By this, by this, by this love that we have for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. The best response to the world's hate is for them to see our love for one another and for them. Next, we see Jesus' deep concern for the despair of his disciples. He knew what they were thinking. He had to know what they were thinking. We read in John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus was telling them here, again, remember, in the context of the world hates you and you will be persecuted, this life is not all there is. This life isn't all there is. These experiences that you're going to have, they're not the end of the story. Yes, the world may hate you. But as we've already seen, Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us. And we can believe in him. And we can trust him with our lives. And when we lay down our lives, literally or figuratively, we can go to that place Jesus has prepared for us and we can be with him. The disciples were completely bewildered and discouraged. Jesus had said he was going away. He said that he would die. He said that one of the twelve was a traitor, that Peter would disown him. He said that Peter would disown him three times, that Satan was at work against all of them, and that all the disciples would fall away. The cumulative weight of these revelations must have greatly depressed them. You think? I think so. Their hearts were troubled. Their hearts were troubled, and we understand why. The word here means stirred or agitated. That's how I feel sometimes when I read the news or I hear the news. Stirred, agitated, troubled. That's how I sometimes feel when I'm facing life's challenges. And many of us are facing some significant ones even today. But Jesus said what? He said, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Believe in me. Trust in me. It won't always be this way, he said. There are greater things to come, he told us. There is nowhere to be found a discourse so beautiful, so tender, so full of weighty thoughts, and so adapted to produce comfort as that which occurs in these chapters of John. It is the consolatory part of our religion where Christ brings to bear on the mind full of anxiety and perplexity and care the tender and inimitably beautiful truths of his gospel, truths fitted to allay every fear, silence every murmur, and give every needed consolation to the soul. In the case of the disciples, there was much to trouble them. They were about to part with their beloved, tender friend. They were about to be left alone to meet persecutions and trials. They were without wealth, without friends, without honors. So Jesus encouraged them. So Jesus encouraged them. He reiterates his encouragement not to be troubled in verse 27 of chapter 14 where he says, peace, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, and neither let them 
be afraid. His peace is not like the peace we tend to seek in other kinds of diversions and other kinds of consolations for ourselves in the midst of things. His peace is the peace that passes understanding. Remember what we learn in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It passes understanding because on the outside looking in, what does it look like? Turmoil. It looks like turmoil. It looks like crisis and chaos all around us. It looks like anything but peace. Yet, in the midst of these things, we can experience peace. And that doesn't make sense to us. That's why it surpasses understanding. This is the peace that Jesus can give us in the midst of a world that hates us. Next, we see perhaps one of the greatest reasons that the world hates us. We see this in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This verse, too, is in the midst of Jesus' farewell discourse, and it gets to the heart of why the world hates us. The exclusivity, let's think about that, the exclusivity of Jesus' claim is often a stumbling block to faith. It's offensive to a world full of people convinced they can do anything they want on their own. Surely he can't really mean he's the only way. People tend to want to believe there are many paths to God, but Jesus says quite clearly here that he is the way, and he is the only way, he is the only path. And that generally makes the world mad, especially when they begin to think of examples. What about Gandhi? He was a good guy, right? Look at all the good things he did. What about good Buddhists? What about good Muslims or atheists? What about those people who just live a good, wholesome, wonderful life? But Jesus said, no one. And that encompasses no one, everyone, no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was Jesus' claim. We can believe it or not, but that's what he said. He's also the truth, which means he's the source of all truth. That exclusive claim also makes the world mad, and it's a reason they hate followers of the way. In our flesh, we tend to like to think that we're pretty self-sufficient, but we're not self-sufficient, and Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. We see this echoed in John chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We don't like to hear that either. For apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing means nothing in the Greek. That goes against the grain of our culture, folks, doesn't it? And this verse tells us something else that's important. We must abide in him. We must abide in him. The meaning of this word is used extensively throughout the Apostle John's writings, and it means to remain in or with someone, to be and remain united with him, one with him in heart, mind, and will. That's another way we deal with the fact that the world hates us. Abide in him. We abide in him. We make unity with Christ in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills. We make that our all in all. We make him our satisfaction. We make him our identity. Related to that is this verse. 
John 14, verses 15 through 17, where Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This verse, in addition to reinforcing the idea that we are in Christ and he is in us, tells us something additional about our response to persecution or our response to the world hating us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's interesting to me how many people will say they love Jesus, but they have absolutely no problem totally ignoring his commandments. We're not just talking about the Big Ten either, the Big Ten commandments. We're talking about all the things that Jesus said to do throughout the word of God, all of the instructions he left us in his word about how to live our Christian life. I remember Jim Grinnell said in a message several years ago that obedience is God's love language. Some of you may have heard the idea of uh, people have love languages. It's the idea that we have love languages based on a book by that same name. For example, some people feel loved when you affirm them verbally. That's how they receive and experience love. Some experience love when you serve them or when you give them gifts. Some feel love through physical touch, like a hug or a grabbing of the hand. Some feel love when you spend quality time with them. But here's how God knows we love him. He knows we love him when we obey him. And how do we know how to obey him? We know his word. We know his word. And if we ignore the things that God requires from us, then we don't really love him. No matter how much we might say that we do. Talk is cheap, folks. Talk is cheap. Sometimes we might be tempted to ignore God's commandments, and sometimes we might be tempted to do that just for the sake of getting along with people. And we can see that illustration in our culture. We don't want to call sin, sin. We don't want to call sin, sin. We don't want them to hate us. We don't want them to persecute us. So we might be tempted to ignore those commandments. But Jesus said, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. Jesus also referred in this verse to the helper that he would send. Thank the Lord for that. He expands on this in an additional verse, John 14, 26, where he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I believe there's a double application of this verse for us here today. Let's pay attention to this. First, he was talking to his disciples, and some of those disciples were going to write the words of Scripture that we have here today. He, the Holy Spirit, is the author of Scripture, which is literally, as the Word tells us, God-breathed. So when Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit will teach you all the things that I've said and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you, one application was clearly the writing of the New Testament. Yet Scripture is the Word of God, and we have it now, don't we? We have the written record of God's Word. So in that way, through His Word, we too have the same assurance, the assurance that God will teach us everything that we need to know, everything we need to know related to salvation, everything we need to know related to holy living, and to help bring His Word to mind and illuminate the understanding of the Word to us. And that's an essential part 
That's a critical part of living in a world that persecutes us or in a world that hates us. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus was concerned that they would hear and remember his words. He wanted to know that they would remember these things as they faced the persecution and the hatred and the suffering. He knew that these things would put them in danger of falling away from their faith. They needed his encouragement. They needed these words. Jesus' message to his disciples that day was essentially, don't be surprised. Don't be tripped up in your faith by the things that will happen. He said, remember what I told you about the resources I've equipped you with. And he also said, left without these words, left on your own, you're in danger of falling away from me. And then he also said, I've given you what you need to keep from stumbling. Here it is. I've equipped you. It's all here. This idea is also echoed in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, which says, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. What have we entrusted to him for that day? What day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of his return, the day of his return to judge the living and the dead. And we've entrusted to him our faith, our faith in him. Will it stand strong? He's saying he is able to guard that faith in the midst of the world's hatred. He's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit. We needn't fear what we face in the future. And we can respond to all of this in the love and grace and mercy of Christ. Then finally, we see in chapter 17, after Jesus is done speaking to his disciples, he begins to speak to his heavenly father. This is his prayer. And his prayer echoed his consolations, it echoed his encouragement, and it echoed his warnings about being hated and persecuted. We see in John chapter 17, beginning with verse 14, I have given them your word. This is Jesus praying to his Father, okay? He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then here's how we know that this doesn't apply just to his disciples. We might read that part and say, okay, he's praying that for his disciples. But it applies to us too, because just a few verses later in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, folks. That's us. We are the ones who have believed in Christ through his word. He has given us his word, and his word is truth, and his word will sanctify us. In other words, his word will make us into a holy people. He intends for us to live in this world. He doesn't want to just lift us out. I mean, haven't you wondered sometimes? This life is so hard sometimes, and you think, why doesn't he, after he saved us, just lift us out of the world? But he doesn't. He not only has not lifted us out of the world, he has sent us, it says. He has sent us into the world. We are his emissaries. We are his ambassadors. So Jesus prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for us. 
And you know what? This isn't the only time that we see Jesus praying for us in Scripture. He's still praying. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Isn't that a wonderful thought that Jesus is still praying for us as we face our life challenges, as we face the world's hatred of us because our faithful witness to the mercy of God through Christ as we still struggle with our own sin nature in this life. Jesus is with God the Father interceding for us. We read in Romans chapter 8 verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Consequently, he, Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Them is us, folks. Them is us. Jesus is constantly interceding with God the Father for us. He knows we are frail. He knows that we can do nothing without Him. He knows we're sinners. So He intercedes for us at the throne of God on our behalf. So when Jesus prepared to leave His disciples to say His farewell, He didn't say, I'm out of here. He didn't say, hasta la vista, baby. He didn't say, happy trails to you. He didn't say any of those things. Instead, it was one of those good news, bad news scenarios. You know where you get the good news and the bad news, and which one do you want first, right? Well, he gave both of them, and he didn't sugarcoat the bad news. He spoke the truth to them. He said, the world hates me, and if you follow me, the world will hate you too. But in the midst of this bad news, he left us with incomparably good news too. It's both. There's, that's bad news, but there's good news too. We can have his peace. We can have his word. We can have his indwelling presence through the Holy Spirit. There's much more to this life than we experience, he said. Much more and much better. Let us all this morning draw encouragement and hope from his word, even as we ponder the truth that because we belong to Christ, the world hates us. And let us respond to that hate with these passages of scripture that we just read this morning and we just spent some time with. Let's respond to that with these scriptures in mind because Jesus has sent us into the world to be his ambassadors. Hated or not, he sent us into the world to be his ambassadors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you've chosen us. We are grateful because of the grace and mercy of our Lord that we belong to you. We're grateful, Father, for telling us the truth in advance that the world will hate us, for telling us the truth in advance that we will be persecuted on account of your name. But we also thank you for telling us in advance that you will never leave us and never forsake us, that we can experience your peace, that we have your word, that we can cling to these things, Father, and that you've given us a helper to help us remember these things and to help us live holy lives for you, Father God. We don't take these things lightly, Father God, and we trust, Heavenly Father, that you'll bring them to mind, even as your word said, you'll bring these things to mind when we need to remember them as we face the world that hates us. In Jesus' name, amen.